Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is Joe Hubbard's Bible study entitled Love Never Fails. Joe is an ordained minister with the Churches of Christ in Australia and has experience in the community development and not-for-profit sector. This is the second session of Joe's Bible study entitled Love Beyond Boundaries. To give you a bit of background on me, which I also forgot to do yesterday. So my name's Joanna Hubbard. You've probably seen that in the thing. If, if you're at the wrong tent, I um, don't think I look like Mick Duncan. So, but if, you, if, if you're expecting a New Zealander, that's not me. I'm from Adelaide, um, which is why my accent might sound a bit funnier, but it's not from Auckland. And in Adelaide, I currently am on maternity leave, but when I'm not on maternity leave, I work for Baptist Care. Um, in South Australia and I help churches who are looking to uh, work with their local communities to work out how they can go about doing that in a way that's really positive experience for both them and for their local communities. So that's my background. Before that I ran a community development organisation in a couple of churches called Marion Life Community Services. So, and at the moment I um, look after a small child. If you've, um, I, and, and that small child um, did me a bit of grief. Last week I was planning on, I'd written two out of my three talks for this, and last week I was planning on writing my third talk, this talk that you're going to hear today, uh, while uh, he was in childcare, which is really good, except that then he came down with a stomach bug and didn't go to childcare all week. So um, this, if you have heard me speak before, I don't know if anyone here has, but if you have, some of this may sound familiar. Um, because I may have had to borrow from a previous talk in order to get me started. Um, but I think it's still very valuable and it's still um, very much on our topic of love. So, love. Love doesn't look like the story I'm about to tell you. A um, couple of years ago when I was uh, working in this community service agency uh, in a suburb, it's only a, it was only about a five minute drive from my house. And I was feeling, I live on the flats in Adelaide, so it's really flat. And I was feeling like a bit of a lazy person driving five minutes to my, um, to my work. So for my birthday, I got a bicycle. Uh, but I'm not a very avid bicycle rider. So I thought New Year's Eve, it was really quiet on the roads. So I thought I'll um, just do a little bit of a bicycle ride uh, to get myself just A, to time how long it was going to take me to get to work, but also just to get a bit of that confidence up. Um, and I was feeling fairly confident on my way back from, so I'd ridden to work and I was about to ride back home and I was feeling fairly confident and I got up a bit of a speed and I came around this roundabout just around the corner from my work and um, the gutter actually just jumped up and jumped into my tyre and I went sprawling onto um, the side of the road and I ended up um, in quite a bit of a mess. I broke my helmet and I sat there in the gutter and I, as I was sitting in the gutter, I was bleeding and you know how you have that adrenaline and that shock and you kind of go, I don't know, am I well enough? Am I well enough to get back on my bike and ride back home? Um, and as I was sitting there in that gutter trying to work out if I was good enough to get back on my bike and also if my bike was 
um, in a good enough condition for me to get back on it and finish my ride, um, a car went sailing past me. And it spun around the roundabout that I'd just seen around and went right past me on my side of the road and I watched it and I thought, I know that car. It was my community development worker for my job. And she just kept driving. And then another car came driving past and it drove past on the other side of the road and it hit the roundabout that I'd just been through and it spun around and it came and parked right next to me. And this guy leant out of the... Now, I'm sitting there by myself, young woman on the side of the road, and this guy leans out of the window and he's not got any teeth and he's got tattoos on his face and I recognise him as someone who comes into our emergency relief program. And he yells out, Are you all right, sweetheart? Do you want a lift anywhere? I decided I was quite okay to get over myself at that point. When I got home, I had a bit of a shower and I um, had a bit of a cry. And when I got out of the shower, I got my phone out and I texted my community development worker. And I wrote Luke 10, 25 to 37. And she wrote back without a blink, oh, that was you bleeding in the gutter on Bradley Grove. I thought so. <laughs> Luke 10, 25 to 37, or what is more commonly known as the story of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit life, eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord with all your God and with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite who, was come, who came to that place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while travelling, came near. When he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Having poured oil and wine on them, he then put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was the neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now the challenge that's facing me today and to anyone else who speaks on this passage ever is that everyone knows this passage way too well. It's become a hallmark of what it means to live in our civilised society. Um, it's actually influenced the development of Western society as we know it. It's escaped the confines of scripture-believing Christians like you and I and it's formed part of a wider communal conscience. It's formed a part of who we understand ourselves to be as Westerners. We've named hospitals, hospitals and schools after it. We've turned it into a phrase of when we give money to the beggar or help an old lady cross the road. And it's really hard to get the shock and power back into a story once it's been gentrified like that. It's a bit like when you watch Spy Club for the second time. You just can't get that same shock back into it. We've domesticated the Samaritan. We've turned him into a Santa Claus-like image who's a lot like me. And so if you'd just like to try your absolute best to forget the twist, to spend your disbelief and prior knowledge, then I'd like to try and spend this talk 
trying to claw back the grubby, dangerous outcast on that treacherous stretch of road so that we actually can truly appreciate the craziness of Jesus' message here. So that we can learn from this passage what it really might mean to love our neighbours wholeheartedly beyond barriers and beyond boundaries. So this story, as it begins, begins as an, as an interruption to a private conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And it's an interruption that happens um, uh, between Jesus and a lawyer who forms a part of a group of Jewish experts who we have been told up until this point have been trying to trip Jesus up. But in trying to trip Jesus up, Jesus, uh, the lawyer actually gives Jesus a better summary of the law and the prophets and a better summary of Jesus' ministry than anyone else up until this point. In fact, this is the summary that Jesus will use later on to sum up his whole ministry. The answer to everything is love. And as I said yesterday and as I'll keep saying, that's as simple and as difficult as it gets. Wholehearted love of God and wholehearted love of our neighbour. So this lawyer gets 100% for correct theology. In fact, in Matthew 22, like I said, at the final weeks of his earthly ministry, Jesus will make this exact same statement to the scribes and to the Pharisees to sum up his whole work on earth. So the lawyer gets 10 out of 10 in his theology quiz. But the problem is it's not a test, it's life. And the lawyer is not satisfied with his answer. He asks another question. The lawyer asks, how far should this love reach when it comes to other people? Now, from the Old Testament, where his initial summary has come from, this love extended to his brothers and sisters in Israel. And it also extended to strangers who were, who were living under Israel's law. But now they're living under occupation. And so he wants to know, well, how do I interpret this under occupation? How do I interpret this when people aren't living under Israel's laws? And there's a lot of discussions going on in Jesus' day among the theological giants of his day. And they want to know where Jesus is going to weigh in on this argument. Will he prove to be evangelical? Will he prove to be orthodox or will he prove to be a crazy liberal? Which theological camp will Jesus align himself with? And this question, in various forms, has been asked countless times in good faith and in ignorance. How do I love my neighbour wholeheartedly, but not at the risk of personal or financial harm to myself and those who I actually care about? Once again, as I said yesterday, all of this stems from a desire for security and safety and an avoidance of vulnerability and it springs from the fact by the time we trot off to primary school, each of us has worked out the world as a dangerous and a scary place and to love in a dangerous and scary place is to make ourselves vulnerable to all the dangerous and scary out there. And so once again, like the rich young man yesterday, and this lawyer wants to know where is the safety net. How can I love wholeheartedly without being vulnerable? The lawyer asks, what must I do? Now, it's not rocket surgery, but he, like us, like a rich young man, wants a different and easier answer. To whom shall I trust my love? To whom shall I provide my ministry? By asking this question, which he already knows the answer to, he's already given the perfect 100% theology answer, the lawyer is actually shirking obedience to God's commands, and these are the commands which he claims such intimate knowledge of. Do what you know, Jesus says, and you will live. You know what to do, just do it. Love God, love your neighbour, in fact, love your enemy. Just love. But how often do we ask these questions? We ask, but how? How should I minister to my neighbours? 
Tell us the greatest need in my area so I can fix it. We talked about what need does to love yesterday. The lawyer asked, tell me exactly who is my neighbour so that I can minister to him. Now, I'm actually paid to answer that question for churches. So at the risk of putting my job at, at jeopardy, don't tell Baptist Care, but this isn't a PhD worthy question. But we are all wanting an easier answer. We're all wanting a more delineated answer. We all want a more nuanced answer. The lawyer wanted an answer that was akin to, your neighbours include the Jews, God-fearing Gentiles, but doesn't extend to people X, Y, Z. Most of the time when I personally hear this question, I know that the, pe the people who are asking the question want an answer something like, provide X, Y, Z program, or fix X, Y, Z problem. And it struck me recently the similarity between these two questions. In fact, it struck me so much working with a church who I got along really well with, um, and I was asked to comment on who I thought they should be targeting with their programs. To whom we should we be directing our wholehearted love, I heard. And I answered, I think you know the answer because you've heard the story. A man was going up from Jerusalem to Jericho. The story is so etched into our collective conscience and yet we still mumble the same question as the lawyer. But who? Who is my neighbour? How far? How wide? How risky? How wholeheartedly do I need to love them? And what? And Jesus' voice echoes through the centuries. A man was going up from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and went away leaving him half dead. Now the road that Jesus is talking about is a secluded road. It was popular among thieves. This part of the story is utterly believable. But just by good fortune, Jesus tells us, down this same dangerous stretch of road, there comes two men who should be able to answer the lawyer's question. Those with all the right answers. Those whose example should be followed. In fact, they're even coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, so presumably they've just spent time with God. They come, they see, they pass by on the other side. Now, every sermon I've heard on this passage have tried to justify this action on behalf of the priest and the Pharisee, by a priest and the scribe, based on ritual defilement or purity. This man, half dead, or perhaps completely dead for all they know, would have defiled the priest and the Levi had they touched him. And therefore it would have stopped them from being able to do their ministry for anyone else. Maybe this is true. Perhaps not. Jesus doesn't actually say. It would be equally fitting that this man wasn't a Jew. Remember, this man was stripped naked. Perhaps the thieves left him lying on his back. Perhaps the Pharisee and the Levi took a look and went, not my neighbour. It's meant to be funny. You don't have to laugh. You can just feel awkward about that. <laughs> Jesus doesn't tell us that either. In fact, he's very particular about not naming the, uh, anything about the man who's, who has been stripped of his possessions. He's completely anonymous. He's not, he, he, Jesus mentions nothing about his, his ethnicity. He's completely anonymous. Jesus doesn't tell us if he's a Jew, a Gentile or even a Samaritan, which is going to make answering the question, who is my neighbour? very difficult because who is this man he's completely anonymous all we know from jesus's description is that he is a human a neighbor in need of love the lawyer's question <clears throat> focuses on whether the wounded man possesses neighborly status 
But the parable, which keeps him utterly anonymous, focuses on who behaved as the neighbour. And that's the twist. And we all know what it is. It's hard to experience shock. But certainly those listening wouldn't have expected this to happen. Most probably they would have expected the third character to be something like a Jewish farmer. Expected the story to have some sort of anti-clerical twist to it. Jesus does seem to be a kind of power to the people kind of guy. But in a case of Soze kind of twist, it's a Samaritan. He comes, he sees, and rather than walking by on the other side, he's moved with pity. Now, is Jesus speaking from his experience of Samaritans as particularly compassionate people? Far from it. In the context of Luke telling this story, Jesus has just before this been rejected by a Samaritan village. Nor is Jesus speaking about faith. Nothing here is said about the man, the faith of the Samaritan or the faith of the man attacked by thieves. Nothing is said about faith at all. At very best, this is a story of justification by works. At very worst, this is a story of justification by socioeconomic bracket. Jesus does not choose a Samaritan because they're especially nice, compassionate people. He chooses them precisely because they are other and because of their strange theology. It really, I'm going to let you in a secret, it really bothers me when people whose theology is not as good as mine care about people more than I do. Bloody Fred Hollows doing all of his great work for no other good reason than because it needs to be done. And that bother exposes something strange in me. Perhaps I'm just jealous. Probably I am. Why didn't I have the intelligence or the courage to do that good thing? But perhaps it's stranger than that. Do I really believe that the holy God, omnipotent and sovereign over all things, really requires my perfect theology to be at work? Or that the omnipresent author of all creation is only at work inside the church and the church with the right theology at that? And what would I do if I discovered that the kingdom of God was breaking out next door to me or next door to the church that I'm a part of, in my neighbourhood, among people who had bad or no theology of Jesus and his kingdom? As I said before, my job is to support Baptist churches in South Australia to engage healthily with their local communities, their neighbours. And part of this process is, is to support churches to have healthy and equal conversations with their community, regardless of that community's need. We want to find a place to start working that is equal, a place of mutuality rather than meeting need, of how can we fix, how can we, <coughs> sorry, a place of how can we walk alongside of you and be your friend rather than how can we serve or fix you. The idea is to get people who participate in the church services and those who live in the neighbourhoods around the church to come face to face and begin to imagine what it might look like for them to work together as equals to see a healthy, thriving and safe community around them. So this isn't about the church providing programs to the local community but about people who attend the church and people in the local neighbourhood working together and co-creating together determining and developing together what might be needed, what might be needed in this recipe to make a healthy and vibrant and abundant life come about. And as you can imagine, that's not an easy process and it doesn't happen overnight and it's certainly not a work that's ever finished. 
It requires constant fostering and nurturing and massaging, and it also has a really strange and foreign element to it. It isn't the standard framework that the church has worked under, and it certainly isn't the way we've always done things around here. It looks very different from looking at ABS statistics and providing a program on the community based on what that says the needs are. And what comes out of it more often than not is very different from standard community programs. And because it's so such a different journey, it's a bit of a journey for both parties to get used to. Not only the church, but also the local community. People in the wider community are not used to being asked by the church what it would look like for their lives to be richer. And if they are asked, so there can be some wariness when they are asked, and if they are asked in the past, it's very rare that they've ever been included in actually bringing that about. More often, they've been asked, and then the church has provided a solution for them, pre-packaged, re-wrapped. So when we start this process, I started this process somewhat recently before I went on leave, which feels recently for me, with a group of church leaders. And I was not surprised when I started discussing that this would be a great way to go about it, that one of the questions I was asked was, what are you suggesting, Joanna? Are you suggesting that we're going to let the non-Christians lead this? Are we going to let the Samaritans in on this? And the question I asked back was, do we believe that God is bigger than the church? That God's spirit is working to bring all creation to restoration? Do we believe that God is already at work in our communities, in our neighbourhoods? Do we believe that? That wasn't rhetorical. One person believes that. It's going to make it difficult for the rest of this conversation. If we do believe that, then isn't it our job as people who know God who recognise God's voice, who recognise God's handiwork, to find where God's Holy Spirit is already at work building the kingdom and join the Holy Spirit in that work. Or as Eugene Cho has put it, the church can't contain all that God is doing because God can't be boxed in. But nevertheless, it is one of the most beautiful things that God is doing. But that's one of the barriers we face to wholehearted love of our neighbours and our communities. Often we would rather be their servants than their friends. I was speaking to a lady recently who'd been a part of a mentoring program with a local church, but she was quick to tell me it wasn't any good. The program wasn't any good. Because the person she was mentoring clearly had a lot of needs in her life. She needed to get a job. She needed to study or something like that. She needed to improve her English. But instead, all this lady wanted from her was to be her friend. I didn't get involved in the program to be her friend, Joanna. I got in the program to help her. I asked the question yesterday, what, it would, what would it look like if we stopped trying to serve our community and tried being their friends, tried wholehearted love? What would it look like, and this is, oh, it is coming up, you can probably read it now. What would it look like for our churches to work with people in our, rather than for people in our community? One thing, as I said yesterday, this kind of love, this kind of friendship, this kind of, kind of wholehearted love, if we want to be friends, friends rather than servants, it can't be conducted from the sidelines. The difference between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan is when the priest and the Levite came by the man who'd been ransacked by robbers, they created distance between themselves and this man. Whereas the Samaritan drew close. The Samaritan got up close and personal. As churches, we have an inherent wariness of up close and personal. And the more dangerous and ransacked the man is by robbers, the more wary we are. 
It's one of the reasons we've institutionalised our care arms. It's one of the reasons I can get a job with Baptist Care. That and the capacity of access to government money. But in many cases we've institutionalised to the point of total separation. And now we're worried that our care arms are doing totally okay by themselves. And in one, most cases they don't need or want us anymore. In many cases, we as churches have walked on the other side of the road and let our incorporated care arms tend for the men and women who have fallen among robbers. Because they know the right combination of oil and wine to apply and they have a good referral network, for, of network of inns at the local area. But if the church wants to be the restoring communities, we need to get up close and personal. We need good referral networks. We most certainly do. And we must commend our care arms and other caring professions for the incredible things that they've done. But what the professionals in our community cannot offer is up close and personal. And what more importantly, what they can't offer is the wider care, not just to professionals, not just to people who are paid to care for people, but of a whole community of, making them, of people who are making themselves personal and available to each other. That's what the church can offer that no one else can offer. No professional system can offer that. It takes a community of people to find and reclaim isolated people. I was reminded of that late last year when I attended a memorial service of a man named Stewie. A few years ago, Stewie came to be a part of a community garden that I was a part of. He came, uh, he struggled to come regularly until the team banded together and bought him a bike. For a long while when he did come, he'd do nothing but sit and swear and smoke in a corner and not lift a hand to water or weed. One of the other members began to get a bit bitter about this, that our community garden coordinator wouldn't have anything of it. He said, there's something that's drawing this man out of his lonely world. This is the only place he comes to and that's good enough for me. So they just set on about loving him until one day, out of nowhere, this man rode up to the garden with a plant resting on his handlebars or a plant, if you're in Victoria, sorry. <laughs> it was his gift to the garden. And if he had brought a solid gold bird bath, it couldn't have been more celebrated. I think it has pretty flowers in spring, he said. But the next morning, the plant was gone, stolen. The same member who had previously grumbled about the laziness could not stand the sudden praise that had happened around this plant. Unfortunately, this man was not particularly clever about his theft because he planted it in his own front garden. <laughs> but he still denied it. So our garden coordinator gave him an ultimatum. He said, until you can apologise and pay for that stolen plant, you're not welcome in the garden. Now, the garden had become this man's world as well. So for weeks he grumbled and he literally walked. There was a big cyclone fence in front of the garden and he literally just walked back and forth like you often see you know, elephants do in the zoo. Until it, we were able to finally coax an apology out of this gentleman. Unbeknownst to him, however, the community garden coordinator had also given an ultimatum to the man whose plant had been stolen. He said, when this man returns, because he will, and when he apologises and compensates you for your, his theft, if you do not forgive him, you are also not welcome in the garden. And I have this amazing photo of the world's most awkward hug. <laughs> when this man offered forgiveness and the other man pretty much launched himself on him <laughs> to thank him. And it reminds me of why I do what I do. 
Now, unfortunately, this man lost a long, a long battle with the bottle and with his demons. And, but in the last weeks of his life, other people from our garden drove him to his doctor's appointments and made sure he had food in his cupboards. And when his estranged brother came up from the southeast for his funeral service, he saw two dozen people turn up to the service and broke down into tears. As we shared our stories of who we knew Stewie to be, the tears just kept flowing. And at the end of the service, he said, I need to say something. Today you have restored my faith, not only in the church, but in humanity. That when my brother was in the ditch, you literally picked him up. And even though he kept falling in that same ditch, you just kept picking him up. But it wasn't a structured program. There was no roster for taking Stewie to the doctor's appointments. This was just a home. This was just community. Jesus doesn't say, I want you to develop a really good program to make sure no one is isolated or alone. Jesus said, I want you to love your neighbour. The Samaritan switched the place of authority when he placed the injured man on his own animal and walked that dangerous road by foot. In doing so, he put his own life at risk of being attacked by robbers. And in an ancient Near East setting, the one who rode was far superior to the one who walked. In international development, we seem to have finally come to understand the damage we've done in the past by sending rich white men to African countries to fix people there. We're now all about empowering local people to lead their own community, own community transformation. However, sometimes this message doesn't seem to have translated to the work we do in our own communities. We still sometimes seem to send rich white men and women to fix the poor. As I said yesterday, there's a lot of authority when we go about trying to serve the poor by providing a program to those in need. And I'm not trying to say that all programs are bad, but we must be aware of the power that we hold when we are the providers. And then we must try and reconcile that with the Christ who we serve, who though he was in the form of God, did not require regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we want to be communities of transformation, we really must find ways to put those who we're seeking to care for in positions of authority at the head of the table or on the bank of the donkeys to speak. Like our story yesterday and the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is not trying to give us a moral obligation or justification or even a mandate to care for poor people. Rather, here he is giving us an exaggerated example of compassion, of the kind of compassion that the Father lavishes on humanity, the kind that risks far more than could be required or expected. We say we did our Good Samaritan when we give a few coins to a beggar or visit an old lady in a hospice or help in a soup kitchen not put our life or financials on the line. The Samaritan, by contrast, stopped on a dangerous step, stretch of road to assist someone he didn't know in spite of self-evident peril and possible ambush. He took the man to an inn, and it's unlikely this was, you know, a West, best Western inn. We're talking about the kind of inn where there's a lot of bar fights. He entered into an open-ended relationship with, a, with an innkeeper, and if you've seen Les Mis, you'll know how that turns out. The Samaritan put his life and financials on the line for a man who he never knew, but in whom he recognised as a neighbour in need of his love. If the story of the good Samaritan requires more than just fake sales from us. It requires us to truly hear the exaggerated example 
that the Good Samaritan provides. His exaggerated risk-taking. His exaggerated financial commitment to a man who he didn't know. And in hearing this exaggerated example, it calls us to, to authenticate our hearing in our doing. Jesus' final answer to the lawyer's question of who is my neighbour is go and do likewise. Who is my neighbour? You. You yourself are the neighbour. Go then and be obedient in acts of love. Being a neighbour is not something that someone else qualifies themselves as. It's not necessary for them to provide to prove themselves to be trustworthy, loving, committed. If you only love those who love you back, then you're no different from anyone else. There is nothing radical about loving our friends, loving our family. True love is demonstrated to those who can do nothing in return. Being a neighbour is not something that someone else earns, but rather a claim that they have on me, nothing else. In every situation, in every moment, it is me who is required to act as the neighbour. And how far must I go to do that? Jesus' radical example of the Samaritan says, as far as it takes. We, like the lawyer, know the answer. To seek clarification only puts us in the lawyer's camp, seeking self-justification and an easy answer. In fact, we know more than the lawyer because we've been privy to the ultimate act of neighbourly love, more exaggerated than far than the Samaritan, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To seek love's safety nets in spite of the sacrifice of Jesus is to turn our back on the resurrection. Sure, in this life, in this world, love is dangerous. But we claim to be disciples and heirs of the one who has overcome this world. We domesticate, disinfect, deodorise and sanitise the prophetic words and witness of the parable of the Samaritan until it becomes something more like Santa Claus. And then we embrace this manageable, smiling character and make him into our own image. But he's not in our image. He's crazy, he's risk-taking, he's over-the-top, a man of spontaneous love and action. How do I love my neighbour? I can only know by doing. What must I do? Ask the lawyer. Do this and you will live, replies Jesus. The one who was the neighbour was the one who did mercy, articulates the lawyer. Do likewise, commands Jesus. For Luke, Luke hearing is authenticated in doing. And today we're going to hear a lot of things. But what are we going to do with what we hear? Did the lawyer go and do likewise? Will you? Will I? All right, what's the, someone got the, let's go look at the time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, timekeeper, Jesse. Um, okay, we're just going to spend uh, 10 minutes again to have a look at this question among yourselves, so with the people just immediately around you. And then um, we'll come back, hear a bit more about that, and then I'll pray. So what would it look like for our church to work with rather than for at their community? Give back to me or the people around you, and so just that two-way 
Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, we were talking about the question of need, yeah, because it's it sort of sits there. Where on my words, I'm a bit nervous about that word. Mm. Um, so you've got a community spot isolation with needs. So what's an alternative question that might sort of open that up for a church mob to say, okay, we we're going to have a conversation about isolation. But we're not going to make a bloody visitors program, like, or make it because that's where that'll go. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Have you got a Have you got a question? No, no. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> you do. Out of my head at the moment is, is how, how do you get church mob into that conversation mm -hmm. and just keep me or Bible aside? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with visiting? What What's wrong with an organised visiting program? What did you mean by that? You were worried it would become an organised visiting program. What's yeah, well, you know, because, um, because it's like a service for people. It yeah, yeah. It would end up being a roster, is that what you're saying? So just similar to what I was talking about with Stewie, where, you know, these people are taking him to the hospital on this day and you're taking him to the hospital on that day and it can hamper true community. Well, the, the alternative in the story that I told was there was enough community around him that people were just doing it. There wasn't any, there wasn't a roster of, okay, I mean, there may have been some organising, oh, are you taking him today or am I taking him today? But there wasn't a, a program written down by the church of Stewie needs help, so we're all going to, um, someone who I don't know, can I call, can you take Stewie? It just was a, look, my friend Stewie needs a lift, so um, I'm going to take him to the... progression, it's like, I know what you're saying, mm -hmm. but then it's like, there are still isolated people and people, mm. Did you have a thought? Sorry, at the back on that. I think it's, yeah, am I providing a service to this guy or is he my friend? And I think when we start, you know, is it someone who I'd have over for dinner? Is it someone who I'd consider friendship as a broader, um, what, what is being a friend? And that's something that I often have to ask myself a lot about actually, is, is this is someone who I'm helping or is this someone who's my friend? Well, what, does, what do I do with my friends and, and does it look like that? Or does this look like someone who I'm, does that make sense? Did you? Yeah. Um, I just think, like you said before, there's nothing wrong with programs. No. It's the genuine factor. It's the genuine factor. And if you are better with a program because you need that accountability, but at the end of the day, whatever we're doing, we have to be genuine. And we're accountable to God for our heart. It's not whether, like, like you said, about ticking off a list, oh, good, I've done that. Well, if that's where you're coming from, you know, it's your heart that counts for God. We're accountable to God for our heart. And if we're genuine in our visiting, awesome. If you don't have a program and you go on to visit by themselves and God puts on your heart, good, do it. But we're accountable for our heart, not to a checklist or anything like that. And that's the bottom line, isn't it? Genuine, genuine love. And God gives us everything we need to do that. And as we trust in him, as we are, just full of his love and outworking that in whatever way he would lead us to do. Awesome. If that's a program, awesome. If it's not, awesome. But let's just be vessels of his love in genuine ways. 
I certainly spill the Bible all over you. That's great. That we do yeah. Like we just had this colour run and we sat there with the rotary and just collected donations and gained the trust of the community that way because we didn't talk about what we did. I mean, people asked, we were quite happy to talk, but we just, with our hearts, we were helping the community out and just gaining their trust with the community. And there's a lot of trust to be gained yeah. there because there is a lot of suspicion about, and, and most of the time, I think a lot of that journey, the initial journey with the community, is there is suspicion of, well, what, what are you trying to do to us? There must be an alternative agenda here. Yeah. All right, thank you so much for being a part of this study today. I'll say a prayer for us as we leave, um, and I look forward to seeing some of you tomorrow. So let's pray. Father, help us to love you not only in word but in doing. Jesus, continue to be our example of dangerous love that goes beyond barriers. And Holy Spirit, inspire in us a neighbourly love that we may always be the neighbour and draw near. This was one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.